Hello, everyone. We would be failing as American citizens and as humans if we didn't take a moment to acknowledge the incredible rage gripping the United States at the moment. We are a small three-person company in its infancy, but even just three people can raise their voices to speak up on behalf of justice. We stand firmly in support of the protests against systemic violence across this nation and the world. Black Lives Matter. This podcast is about games, which feels a bit frivolous right now. If you just need to take a few minutes to think about worlds other than the real one, I hope you're distracted, pleasantly, for a little while, by today's episode. From Andy, Kylan, and Kevin here at TumbleDye Games, stay safe out there. We're with you. Hail and well met, Traveler. Welcome back to Threat Dice, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the vagaries of the dice. I'm your host, Kylan Wigan. I am one-third of the team at TumbleDye Games, a young company developing a new, hybrid storytelling RPG called Trove. We believe in the power of story, and the goal of Trove is to empower both players and game masters to level up the action, drama, and believability in their tabletop games. You can find out more at www.tumbledie.com, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at TumbleDie, or Instagram. Before we get started today, I'm actually kind of unreasonably excited to have some announcements. First of all, our Twitch live playtest on Saturday nights started on May 23rd. You can see Trove being played in real time, with players who are very familiar with the system, since they've been playing versions of it for almost a year now. Check out our Twitch channel at www.twitch.tv slash tumblediegames. Live playtest streaming is every Saturday night from 8 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, with hopefully more to come. If you want to catch up with the playtest, you can. Tumbledie is now on YouTube featuring playtest stream archives and previous episodes of this podcast, with more to come in the near future, trove tutorials, video updates from the TumbleDie team, and more. Just search for TumbleDie Games and look for the red D20 logo in the channel header. It's very much a work in progress, but we'll have more available soon. And now, one quick ask. If you've been enjoying Threat Dice, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice. We'll be choosing a selection of reviews to read aloud on the next recorded episode, and yours might be featured. Thanks so much for listening, and now, on to the episode! Today, let's talk about building a new world. I'm actually working on this right now, because my Saturday night trove playtest needs to start something new. I've been wanting to develop something brand new from scratch for a while, and bring a world to my players that's something they've never seen before. We call that particular session Sci-Fi Saturdays. It started with a Starfinder game a couple of years back, and has stayed sci-fi every week since. So I'm building a new sci-fi universe from the ground up. It's quite the undertaking. Just a quick note, what I'm about to talk about is what works for me. There's no guarantee that my methods will work for you. My goal here is not to prescribe exactly what you should be doing when you're building worlds. 
Instead, I'd like to share some of my personal process, and with any luck, you might pick up a thing or two that you can use for yourself. So let's talk about two ways to go about world building. Even though I've been doing this since I was 12 or so, my first secondary world, meaning entirely separate from reality, was an extremely simple, simplistic medieval D&D fantasy world called Euloria, and it's still the closest to my heart. It's in the last 10 years that I've started to refine my methods a bit. I've spent some time this last decade immersed in the world of project management, and a fair amount of that translates pretty one-for-one one to DM planning skills. First, let's talk about the waterfall method, which I sort of see as the more traditional way to build a world or a project, and then the sleeker, newer, iterative method that's all the rage in the modern world of project management. By the way, both of these are independent from how you go about generating your ideas. You could use both of these techniques either before session zero, if you're going to bring a world to your players, or after, if you want to have your players help you create the initial core ideas. Waterfall building is a huge undertaking, especially for a single person. I think it's the instinctive way to go about building a world. This is what Tolkien the grandfather of fantasy, and probably the weird uncle of the modern RPG, did when he built Middle-earth. The man wrote a book, The Hobbit, and when that went over fairly well, he went back and created the universe from scratch. History stretching back to the dawn of time, languages, cultures, places, through what I assume was a combination of methodical building process and random ideas jotted down and then expounded upon later, Tolkien created the world of Middle-earth by himself, in an enormous waterfall of ideas, writing, and eventually, The Lord of the Rings, his epic. Up until the last 20 years or so, this is not dissimilar to how companies would implement changes to their business. They would figure out what needed to happen, develop it in a cascade method over time, then go to testing everything and how it all fit together, and finally implementing it all at once, sometimes as long as five years later, depending on the scope of the changes. This methodology is very completionist, and ensures that everything fits together, but it's also subject to what they call scope creep, meaning that everything in the kitchen sink tends to get tossed in a project that runs so long. It also has a problem where it would get outpaced by technology. By the time the project was done, the technology it was built on was already out of date. This is less a problem for authors, and by extension game masters. But there is still an issue of getting it done in any kind of reasonable time to, you know, actually play a game in the world. If you are ready and willing to think about all the things a world requires cultures, trade, international relations, imports, exports, war, peace, and so forth building a world from scratch, from soup to nuts, can be an incredibly rewarding experience. The major drawback is the sheer time investment required. It's really quite daunting. I've even done some conlanging in my younger days. I am a huge language nerd. Uh, conlang is short for constructed language. Like Tolkien's elvish tongues, totally made up by an author. Back when I was feeling more ambitious. I found that the older I got, and the more I understood about the real world, the less confident I felt in building an entire secondary world from scratch. There are just so many moving parts. The worlds I built when I was younger were fairly simple. A kingdom on an island, a few connected kingdoms together maybe, 
but even those never had a feeling of realism, because they were never truly interconnected like things are in the real world. Borders seem simple to a kid or even a teenager, but in reality, neighboring countries or kingdoms had a lot more going on between them than the occasional war. There's constant movement across borders, trade of goods and cultures, livestock, and so much more. The more you fictionalize, the more you have to rationalize, and the more complex the entire project becomes. Want to add monsters? What's their ecology like? How do they fit in on the food chain? How do those orcs and goblins manage out there, anyway? Do they have their own sovereign territory? Their own culture? Why are they fodder for humans and elves to slaughter like cattle? What about dragons? How exactly do they get enough to eat, anyway? A lot of fantasy worlds hand-wave these things away, because, well, it's just fiction, right? Unfortunately, that's never been enough for me, and it's one of the reasons I've always shied away from using settings created for games. I've always been a builder of my own worlds, even when they were awful, because I was trying to accomplish a sense of realism, as much as fantasy and fiction can be realistic, that I just could never find in the ones that were out there. Of course, I never managed it either, so I get why it's enough to just handwave a lot of that stuff. More recently, I've shifted to the other method that I mentioned earlier, the iterative approach. It took me a long time to realize that a lot of the books and stories I read that had really amazing, vibrant settings didn't actually have worlds built like Middle-earth. For a long time, I assumed every fantasy author did that same amount of work when they were creating the setting for their books, and if they didn't, they weren't trying very hard. Boy, <laughs> I was so wrong. What I began to realize as I read and experienced more stories across all mediums, film, books, and video games, was that actual realism, a representation of a real and living world, isn't required for an engaging story. In fact, unless you're particularly talented at world-building, it can end up feeling, paradoxically, less real. There's a bit of philosophy here, but what it comes down to is that verisimilitude, the feeling of reality, isn't necessarily best represented by actual reality. It's where that old, tired phrase, real life is sometimes stranger than fiction, comes from. Our human minds experience reality, but when they do, they rationalize, twist and contort the objective reality into something that makes more sense to us, a narrative arc leading us from one point to the next. Our human brains don't deal with certain things very well. Long-term, abstract threats are one of them. We're really bad at prioritizing things out farther than a few months or a year. Another one is randomness. It's almost impossible to comprehend actual randomness. It's why it feels wrong if a random song sorter plays the same song twice in a row, or the same artist three times within a few minutes when we have thousands of songs. Technically speaking, those are entirely valid outcomes but it feels wrong because our brains are bad at that. Randomizers that feel good to us are actually pseudo-random, weighted in some way, by discounting or removing previous entries from the list so that it feels better to us. So ironically, what ends up feeling more real in stories is something that's less real in an objective sense. We like to see an arc, things changing in a particular direction, 
heroes overcoming overwhelming odds, the bend of the narrative towards something better, or subverting our expectations and delivering something worse. We like to see triumph and failure and redemption in a certain set of patterns that help anchor us to our experience of reality, and not the reality itself. So how do we use this as game masters? That's the key I've been working on as I've been building worlds over the last few years. I don't think I've quite unlocked it all yet, but here's what I've learned so far. Step 1. The Spark To build a new world that feels real in an iterative manner, first you need to start with a seed, a few core concepts or tropes that you want to build around. First, pick a genre, very important. In the world I'm working on right now, I've chosen sci-fi purely out of tradition. We've been playing sci-fi on Saturdays for a couple years now, and we want to continue. Easy enough. From there, I decided, on a long walk, one of my most creative times, that what I wanted to accomplish was a few specific things. Giving the players enough latitude to give them some self-direction, while maintaining the believability of an entire universe around them. This is a tricky balancing act, and one that I am 100% sure I will fail at several times throughout this game. Second, choose a theme. I want to build a world that gives them the chance to seize the levers of power and actually make universe-affecting changes based on their actions. That's universe as in setting, not universe as in scope. It's pretty common for players to be shepherded through a world by a GM who just wants to show off their amazing creation. That is not my goal here. I want to create just enough so that they can see their horizons, but not so much that I spend a bunch of time planning something that gets wrecked by their choices. Time is crucial for me in my current life stage, and so I want to spend as little of it as possible on wasted effort. The theme of this game will be, what would you do for power and to accomplish your goal? And when you have power, what will you do with it? Third, pick some tropes. I want this sci-fi universe to feel unique, so I chose some to combine that should produce a rather unusual flavor. I want to combine a feeling of almost religious reverence for technology, a dangerous and lawless Wild West feeling, and, just to make it really weird, see if I can justify a lack of laser guns. Oh, and when I asked, one of my players requested some weird, far-out alien species as playable characters. I took him up on it. I took all these things and built them into a spark I'm calling the Arc Ecliptic, a once-proud civilization in decline, starships so ancient and rare that nobody would dare fire a weapon on board, a universe where resources are scarce and life is cheap, and a part of that universe that amps this feeling up to eleven, the Exile Fringe. Step 2. Build just to the horizon. Find an initial location for your players to immerse themselves in. Build as much as you think you'll need. Locations, NPCs, enemies, and allies. Make it rich, and especially give those NPCs strong stories and desires of their own. Powerful NPCs, particularly ones who are sympathetic but at cross-purposes with the PC's intentions, are a very important part of verisimilitude. Be careful not to make every NPC an enemy. And likewise, don't make them all friends. Make some of them right and righteous, but in the wrong way. Make some of them gray and mysterious. Fit your NPCs to the tropes and the genre you've chosen as best you can. Don't be afraid to shamelessly steal character concepts and ideas from your favorite media. 
unless your players are paying you, your game is a non-commercial venue, so you're not infringing on any copyrights, even if you take a character fully by name. Step 3. Stay one session ahead. Don't plan too far ahead. It's a recipe for disaster. Give your players some choices, but not too many. If you just turn your players loose in your new world, they will be paralyzed with indecision. It's your world, and they won't be familiar enough with it to just choose what to do. You'll need to lead them a bit at first. Show them around. Give them three problems that need solving, and let them pick which one to address first. After they resolve the first one, make sure the other two have changed irrevocably in some way. Every choice should have a consequence, not necessarily a dire consequence, but by putting something off, the situation there should have evolved somehow. Keep the world moving around them, just out of their sight. Let them glimpse NPCs that change or die suddenly when their interests come into conflict with someone else's. You don't need to go any farther than their horizon at any given time. It's sort of like rendering a video game. You only need to paint in the stuff that they might be able to see at any given moment. If they make a big move, it's okay to need some loading time. Take a short break to figure out what the consequences of that major unexpected choice are. Take notes so that you can address things outside their vision later. As things fall out of the visible area, it's okay for them to fall into stasis a little bit. But if they come back in later, you'll need to jump those things ahead to compensate. Try not to let the world stay too static. That's the first killer of immersion in a story. It's why massive multiplayer games are so hard to believe and are so hard to play for the story. You are the great hero who has come to save us, just like the last 30,000 people who did this quest before you. Most importantly, let the consequences of your player's actions play out in a believable manner. Once they start having ripple effects on the world, it actually becomes easier to keep things going. The more involved they are in the world, the more your attention will revolve around them. Be careful not to let the whole world revolve around them, though. Let the world go on without them here and there. It may frustrate them when they miss an opportunity, but stick to your guns. That's what makes the world feel real, not a bunch of cultures and languages that your players will never see. Honestly, I could probably talk about this subject for hours, but with any luck, this will get you started. I really love building worlds, and I've found that I love building them even more when they are influenced by my players from the very beginning. The cooperative effort for me is a high that's really hard to top. And when I present an NPC that my players are genuinely confused about what to do with, or when they get really hopping mad at one of my villains, or just say out loud, wow, that's a really cool detail, I get a rush of adrenaline that can't be beat. I hope you feel the same way. Thanks for joining me today. Until next time, may the road ever rise to meet you. Threat Dice is a production of TumbleDye Games, LLC. Our intro music is What Lies Beyond, the interludes are Clockwork, and the outro music is Storm, all by Vinsvept. Check out his amazing work at youtube.com slash Vinsvept, V-I-N-D-S-V-E-P-T. Additional music by Andy Ray and Andre Sitkov. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Kylan Wigan. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience.
You can find Threat Dice on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.